the treasures of the string quartet repertory are the six quartets that Mozart wrote between 1782 and 1785, which rather confusingly are known as the six Haydn quartets. And that's the beginning of one of them, K465 in C major, which has a nickname, the Dissonance Quartet. More of that title in a moment. If that didn't sound particularly dissonant, all will be explained. Mozart wrote these quartets, as I said, in the beginning of the 1780s, when he was approaching his 30th birthday. Now, there's a good reason for this slightly confusing nickname. Mozart dedicated these quartets to Joseph Haydn, but it wasn't just a gesture of respect to another great composer or a desire maybe to curry favor from Haydn, who was at the time the most famous composer in the world. There's a remarkable dedication that Mozart wrote in his introduction to the quartets, and I'll read you a slightly reduced version of it here. It's in the form of a letter which is much more literate than Mozart's letters normally are, as I'm sure those of you who've read them, and certainly free of some of them are extravagant comments that Mozart can make from time to time. But it's a very interesting document, and I'll read you a bit of it. Vienna, September the 1st, 1785, to my dear friend Haydn. A father, having decided to send his children out into the wide world, felt that he should entrust them to the protection and guidance of a famous man, who by good fortune was also his best friend. Here they are, distinguished man and dearest friend, my six children. They are, to be truthful, the fruit of a long and laborious effort. You yourself, dearest friend, told me of your approbation during your last visit here to our capital. This acceptance gives me courage to commend them to you and makes me hope that they would not be completely unworthy of your favour. May it please you to welcome them kindly and be to them a father, guide and friend. From this moment on, I hand over to you all my rights to them, begging you, however, to consider with indulgence their flaws which a father's uncritical eye may have overlooked, and in spite of them, continue your generous friendship towards one who so greatly appreciates it. Well, it's rather fascinating. That word father turns up an awful lot in that dedication, which could be significant because Mozart had just come to the end of a very painful period in his life when his relationship with his own father, Leopold Mozart, was under great strain. Leopold had finally lost patience with his son at the beginning of the 1780s when he'd deliberately got himself evicted, quite literally evicted, from the Archbishop of Salzburg's service and become a freelance composer, and then to cap it all, married a woman, Constanze Weber, of whom Leopold strongly disapproved. But it was about the time that these quartets appeared that a reconciliation appears to have happened. And yet Mozart still has this preoccupation with fathers. Who's going to be a father to these extraordinary works that he's written that have cost him such effort? It's something that he's really preoccupied with, and he's offering them to Haydn, say, be the father to these works. Help them in the world. You know, I, I, I'm in need of some sort of father figure here, which is very striking. It's also striking that Mozart was so stirred, as he puts it, by Haydn's approbation. Well, this, this again was a rather remarkable moment and a key moment in the reconciliation between uh, Mozart and his father, because it was a concert where Mozart's music was played, where Leopold Mozart was present and Haydn was present. And Haydn went up to Leopold and said, I say to you before God and as an honest man that your son is the greatest composer whom I know in person and by reputation. Now, you can imagine the effect of that on Leopold and indeed on the father and son relationship. How could Leopold continue to be hostile to his errant son when he's just had such an extraordinary encomium from the most famous composer in the world? You also wonder how Haydn could possibly have failed to approve of like this, whatever Mozart may say about the flaws that he's worried about in these works. But Mozart's anxiety does seem to have been quite genuine. He really spent a considerable special effort on these quartets, as we'll see. And certainly listening to the opening of a piece like the D minor quartet in K421, you know, is this in any way inferior to any one of Haydn's quartets? I, I think not. Thank you. 
That's the first section of Mozart's Quartet K421 in D minor. Sorry about that abrupt ending there, but uh, often with this music it's so seamless that finding a nice clear out point is actually rather difficult. That combination of elegance and nervous intensity, of playfulness and high seriousness, that seems absolutely typical of Mozart. His voice is absolutely clearly in focus there. What was he so worried about? What was it that was giving him anxiety with these quartets? Because clearly something did. It took him a lot longer to write these quartets than most of his chamber works. And when he says that, makes that remark in that dedication to Haydn about them being the fruit of a long and laborious effort, that really does seem to be the case. If you look at the manuscripts, you can see sometimes that he's made many corrections and many changes and adjustments. Some things seem to have concerned him greatly. Why? It's, it seems so odd when we have this idea of Mozart, which is so popular today, that he's almost some sort of divine lightning conductor. He basically just sticks up his hand and inspiration comes down. He writes it straight onto the paper. And yes, the story about him writing the overture to Don Giovanni in one sitting, because somebody said to him, oh, by the way, what about the overture? <gasps> Help. Uh, out comes the overture. It does seem that that's absolutely true. But he seems to have worked particularly hard on these six quartets that he dedicated to Haydn. Well, it seems that the, one of the reasons for this was that Mozart was particularly struck by the experience of hearing six quartets by Haydn himself. The Opus 33 set that were published in 1782, the very year that Mozart began his own tribute to Haydn quartets. Mozart would have played through these with friends. He particularly liked playing the viola in quartets. Interestingly enough, he liked playing the inner parts. It's a good way for a composer to learn because in a way the tune is the most obvious part of a piece. The bass line is the next most easy thing to follow, but what the inner parts are doing so often make an important contribution to the way that we hear the music. And uh, the very best way sometimes for a composer to learn about technique is to play some of those inner parts. You can learn such a lot about it. Well, one of the things that Haydn had said in his own introduction to the publication of his Opus 33 set was that these quartets of his were composed in a new and special way. Well, publishers in the 18th century loved making hyperbolic statements just as much as they do today. But it really seems that in this case, Haydn was right. There was something about these quartets that was different. And what we need to do to understand what it was about them that was different is to just to look at the string quartet in the 18th century. It began to take off as a form around about the second half of the 18th century. That's when you start to hear pieces described as quartets and when they're published. Um, but even so, at the beginning, it's not clear, as it is with some of Haydn's earlier quartets, whether he means them to be for four solo strings or whether they could also be playable by string orchestra with a double bass maybe joining along with the cello part. It's not that obvious. And uh, sometimes the difference between chamber music and orchestral music here is, is not that easy to gauge. Uh, here's a famous example. Actually, this is a rather interesting case that one of the most famous of Haydn's earlier quartets turns out not to have been by Haydn at all. Um, it's the famous Serenade. I'm sure many of you will recognize it when we play it um, from the quartet that's known as Haydn's Opus 3, Number 5. Actually, it turns out to be written by a German composer called Roman Hofstetter. Rather unfortunately, Hofstetter's name only appears in the very biggest and thickest and most inaccessible musical dictionaries, which is rather a shame because it's a lovely piece of music and I think he deserves at least a pat on the back for having once in his life written something as beautiful as this. But listen to it as we play it now and listen to the texture because this is quite important. It's very beautiful, but it really is a kind of aria, a melody for the first violin, which is played bowed, with the simplest possible accompaniment on the other strings played pizzicato, plucked. It's tune and accompaniment. Actually, the accompaniment sounds almost like a guitar. You could imagine the violin sort of as a kind of serenader accompanying himself on the guitar. But this is the point. It's melody on top, accompaniment underneath, and never the twain shall meet. The tune floats on top of the accompaniment, and the two are quite distinct.
You get the point? It's a very simple tune song with accompaniment. Actually, even early Beatles songs usually have more interaction going on between the accompaniment and the melodies than that. It's about the simplest possible musical texture. It's very beautiful, though, but there's nothing about that suggests to me that it's specifically for solo strings. You could imagine it played by a string orchestra with equally beautiful effect, and there's no distinction, really, in style there. But can you imagine this? played by a string orchestra. This is the beginning of what the first of Haydn's Opus 33 set of quartets, the set of quartets that made such an impact on Mozart. Number one in B minor. Surely this can only be for solo strings. Now, what's very striking from that music is that the ideas aren't dominated by the leader or by one instrument. They're constantly being passed among the four different instruments in the ensemble. It's, it's quite extraordinary, as though there's kind of dialogue sometimes going on within the texture. Let's just hear the opening, very beginning again, and listen hard to how the music evolves here, because what happens is that the first violin starts with the tune. Then the tune is passed to the cello. The cello begins. And then it's not quite obvious who it is who's leading the ensemble. Is it the cello or is it the first violin? For a moment, there's a kind of ambiguity. Then it starts again. But you can hear all the time the spotlight is, as it were, darting amongst the members of the quartet and changing so that sometimes the leader is leading, sometimes it's the cello, sometimes the inner voices. But all the time, there's this sense of fluidity in the texture, of a dialogue going on. This is a much more democratic kind of texture. It's no longer the leader and his subjects underneath. It's actually something much more like a conversation. Well, if you think of Mozart's comic operas like Figaro and Don Giovanni or Cosi Fan Tutti, and you think of the ensembles in those where several characters sing at once, and how often there's a kind of lively, quick-fire dialogue going on between the characters on the stage at those moments, you can see why something like this kind of string quartet texture must have appealed to Mozart. Maybe he listened, or maybe had the experience of playing these quartets and thought to himself, ah, there's something here I can use. So he begins to think almost immediately about how he can incorporate this new style of Haydn into his own style. 
Well, interestingly, of course, Mozart is very different from Haydn. I mean, despite the certain superficial similarities of what you might call late 18th century house style. And with Mozart, for instance, when you start at the beginning of the pieces, if you think back to the D minor quartet we heard a little while ago, you rarely get that kind of quick-fire dialogue right at the start of Mozart's Haydn quartets. Take the beginning of the quartet K458 in B-flat. This has a nickname, too. It's called the Hunt Quartet, for pretty obvious reasons, because the opening figure sounds very much like hunting horns with that kind of galloping rhythm. The beginning may not be kind of simple tune and accompaniment. There is some dialogue going on, especially between the two violins. But at the start, it's very clearly the leader who leads, who does what her title suggests. Soon after that, though, things start getting a little bit more complex. The first violin holds a trill, and then the lower strings, the second violin and the viola, start off with the hunt tune underneath. The first violin reasserts herself, but then just a little bit later, we'll start where that previous extract left off, and you can hear for yourselves. telling little passage at the end there where the strings all pass that idea between themselves amongst them. Just, just a few little cluster of notes. And yet because they're four different instruments, and more importantly because they're soloists, four different personalities, it sounds ever so slightly different each time each different instrument plays it. If you can imagine four people sitting around a table discussing it and one of them says a word, I don't know, marmalade for instance, and then the other three people around the table all say marmalade, each one of them would say it in a slightly different way. And that's exactly the kind of effect you get in this passage. Now, Mozart is quite capable in these so-called Haydn quartets of going back to that style we heard in that, in inverted commas, Haydn serenade, but turned out to be by Roman Hofstetter, that simple tune and accompaniment texture. It's a style he likes, and he's very good at it. You take the trio of the D minor quartet, K421. This really is very simple tune and accompaniment. It could hardly be simpler. In fact, it sounds almost like a kind of little music box. Well, the viola joins the violin at the end, but they're clearly playing the same tune. It's, the viola is just adding an extra colour, as it were, to the violin's voice. Very simple tune and accompaniment. But Mozart only reverts to that simple style there, only temporarily and for maximum contrast, because this trio is framed by a minuet, which isn't just sterner and darker, it's in the home key of D minor. But there's a much more complex interactive texture going on. Right at the start, for instance, the violin and the cello begin, and then the second violin, the viola, in the middle, imitate the rhythm that the violin and the cello have played. And you'll hear much more of that kind of interaction going on later. It gives a newer, richer life to the texture, and it sounds all the more effective after that very simple song plus accompaniment texture that we've heard in the trio.
Well, you can imagine how this kind of quick-fire exchange would go down very well in fast movements, and so far we've tended to hear faster music in these extracts. What about the slow movements? K421 has a very beautiful lyrical andante movement. Now, a word of warning here, andante in Mozart's time uh, was a slightly faster tempo than we tend to think of it today. I mean, it literally means walking pace, and there's a lot of evidence that in Mozart's day, and for some time afterwards, people were inclined to take andantes much more like a lively walking pace than, as it were, a kind of very leisurely stroll, which you tend to hear today. But it still is in the slow movements that you tend to hear more of the kind of lyrical, songful music in contrast to the more dramatic exchange of the outer, faster movements. You certainly get what seems like a relatively simple tune and accompaniment at the very beginning of this slow movement, just the opening phrase. But almost immediately that changes. This is what follows, and you'll notice how the leader plays a rising figure, and it's echoed almost immediately by the other voices underneath, each one in turn, layering the texture. And that sort of thing is going on all the way through this slow movement. We'll hear the whole of the first section now. There's a marvellous combination here of Mozart's natural singing lyricism, something that seems to have come to him even when he was a child, with his new dramatic approach to texture that he's learning from Haydn, and which is having such an interestingly stimulating effect on his own way of thinking. The, violin, the first violin still leads, but you'll notice how much more the other instruments are drawn into the discussion, as though the violin is sort of, as it were, delivering the main address on the top, but the other instruments are commenting on it and feeding back to the violin their opinions on what she's saying. And all the time, this kind of fluid exchange is going on. It makes the texture just so much more interesting and alive. The beginning of the slow movement of the quartet K421 in D minor, and again my thanks to the Royal Quartet. Now it's time to take a closer look at one of the finest and most widely admired of the six, in inverted commas, Haydn quartets by Mozart. This is K465 in C major. This one also has a nickname, it's known as the Dissonance Quartet, and why we'll see in a minute. Now, those nicknames that turn up from time to time for works of the classical era often refer to one very tiny passing detail in the work, sometimes so much that you wonder why it is that people thought they were worth pointing out in the first place. Haydn's Symphony No. 83 in G minor, for instance, is known as the Hen. And there is a tiny little sort of clucking figure that turns up at one point or twice in the first movement, which does sound as if it could be a hen pecking around in wheat or in a farmyard just for a moment, but it hardly characterises the entire symphony. So it does seem a little unjust to write off an extremely dramatic and effective symphony in G minor as the hen. Still, uh, there you are. Uh, works with titles always seem to sell more than works without them. So maybe there's a shrewdness in these publishers' ideas after all. But the dissonance in Mozart's K465 isn't just one passing detail, and significantly the really dissonant writing comes at the very start of the quartet. The harmony is really quite surprising. Um, if you listen to this music, you notice that, for instance, again, Mozart is doing things with texture. He starts with just the cello playing repeated notes, then one by one, from the bottom up, 
the strings enter, so that the leader is the last to enter. It's a kind of staggered entry. But each note is a kind of harmonic surprise. It's not quite the note you expect, least of all, the very top one. Those harmonies really are rather extraordinary, aren't they? I mean, if you didn't know that was by Mozart, would you guess? It sounds like someone later, Beethoven possibly, or maybe someone later still, a romantic like Schubert or Schumann. They're almost Wagnerian, that chromatic writing in the middle. I mean, to, to give you an example, the, the middle voices in particular are extremely tortuous chromatically. I'll just, just get the players to pick them out for a moment. This is what the viola's playing right at the beginning there. slightly later than that, against him in canon, as it were, the second violin's playing this. Those chromatic lines moving by tiny steps are kind of like the glue that holds the harmony together, that stops it sounding almost completely chaotic. But it certainly gives this strange, enigmatic, searching quality to the music. You never know quite where this music is going to come to rest. Indeed, if, it, if it's going to come to rest at all, it's got this ambiguous, darkly enigmatic, kind of probing quality, as though it's looking for a place to stabilise. last harmony is really is lovely surprise there, isn't it? You don't expect B-flat minor, certainly not this early in a work that's supposed to be in C major. The harmony does stabilise quite quickly around C, but it's definitely C minor, and this is supposed to be a work in the major key, and this is really sombre, dark minor key beginning. But as soon as we get to the start of the allegro, the main fast part of the movement, the change is complete. Suddenly, we're in another world, really striking, almost like a dislocation in the mood of the quartet. So let's hear it from just about where we ended there, into the beginning of the main allegro, the fast part of this movement.
Now, having a strong contrast between a somber, slow, minor key introduction and then a lively, bright, major key allegro isn't at all uncommon in music of the classical era in the latter half of the 18th century. Haydn does it a lot in some of his later symphonies, and particularly if you know the last symphony, the London Symphony, number 104, that starts as though it's going to be a quite a serious, dark, probing work. You might even think you're listening to one of his darker oratorios, like the Seven Last Words. Then suddenly the mood changes and you're off into this bright, largely comic-style allegro. But when Mozart makes this kind of contrast, it often seems particularly extreme. I don't know how many of you know Mozart's wonderful quintet for strings in G minor. The slow introduction to the finale of that really is one of the most heart-rending things, I think, in music. It's one of the most desperately sad things Mozart ever wrote. And then suddenly, within half a bar, there's a pause, and off you are into a lively, dancing, carefree finale, as though nothing has happened. And I've seen people in concerts look at each other in disbelief at that moment sometimes, because it's such an extraordinary change of mood. It's as though you're being with someone who's clinically depressed, and suddenly they get up and say, oh, well, enough of that. <laughs> Let's go out and get drunk, you know. Um, it is possible, of course, uh, but it is quite a dislocating moment. Or, or for instance, take the final act of um, Mozart's Don Giovanni, his great comic opera. There's that truly terrifying, and I do mean terrifying, final scene where Don Giovanni meets his nemesis with the ghost of the man he killed, the Commendatore. His statue comes to dinner and takes him off to hell. And the end of that scene is really quite extraordinarily stirring. But you've just got to the end of that and Leporello's cries of terror from under the table, and suddenly, off we go into G major, and everything's ready for a kind of comic opera ending. And if you're, if you're unprepared for it in the opera house, it can be quite startling. And we've heard, actually, already in this quartet, something similar. Do you remember that lovely little music box trio tune from the minuet of K421 in D minor? That da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. That sounds so innocent and pure, as though the troubles of the world couldn't be further away. And then suddenly you're plunged back into the minuet, something much more nervous and intense and edgy. Uh, Mozart really does seem to revel in those kind of contrasts. It's funny, isn't it, because there's such an awful lot of talk of perfection in Mozart's music. It's a term that people use a lot. I'm not always sure I know what people mean by this, because it seems to me that perfect music, absolutely perfect music, would be incredibly boring, because it's the element of surprise that makes music often so interesting. But in many of these greatest works of Mozart, we have these extreme or even disturbing contrasts. And I think that's interesting, because this, this nickname, the Dissonance Quartet, for this quartet doesn't just refer maybe to those tortuous, somber, probing harmonies we heard in the slow movement, but in the clash, as it were, between that dark, introspective adagio and what seems at first like a breezy, carefree allegro that follows. And that dissonance, that emotional dissonance, is something we'll see again later in this quartet as we go along. Well, some people have wondered if that strange, probing, slow introduction is possibly a reflection of Mozart's Freemasonic beliefs, because he joined the Freemasons around about the time he was writing these quartets, and he does seem to have taken their theories and their beliefs very seriously. The idea of the contrast between dark and light, of extreme contrast, is something that's very important to Masonic thinking. It's uh, something you find very much in his opera The Magic Flute, which is clearly based on Masonic symbolism. But also there's this element of the clash of texture. That adagio at the beginning was very much based on the idea of equal contribution from the strings. In fact, Mozart does something which in terms of the quartet writing of his time was quite radical, having the cello begin and build up so that the last person who joins the texture is the supposed leader, the person who's supposed to kick it all off in lieu of a conductor. But then when we got to the beginning of the allegro, the leader very much is leader. Again, as in the D minor quartet, she dominates the texture for a while. But then, well, let's, let's just take it from the end of that last extract, and you'll see how almost immediately that attitude to texture changes. <laughs>
So again, we have an interesting pattern here. First of all, we have quite an old-style beginning or so, it seems. The leader largely dominating. Then comes the moment where the cello starts off with an idea, and all the other instruments follow. And then after that change in the texture, it seems that the other instruments are all very much part of the discussion in a way that they weren't at the beginning of the Allegro. Now, I don't think this is just a question of musical style here. I think this really is an interesting reflection of what was happening in the world and the changes politically that were going on in Mozart's lifetime. Because it was, of course, in Mozart's lifetime that the French Revolution happened. And new ideas about how society should be led, challenges to the old idea, the idea that the ruler was somebody given by God, and the people were his subjects, was something that was being challenged increasingly and causing alarm in some quarters of conservative Vienna. This is perhaps a late 18th century view of freedom that we're beginning to experience in Mozart's music here. Because you could say that he starts off with kind of the old order, the patrician order. We have a leader who's very clearly the leader and the other instruments follow in her train. But then comes that little subversive moment where the cello picks up on the idea, passes it around the ensemble, and suddenly everyone in the quartet is involved in the discussion in a new, much more egalitarian kind of way. That really does seem to be equivalent to the moves towards a new kind of democratic thinking about the organization of society. Someone put this, a historian friend of mine, very clearly to me recently, that up till about Mozart's time, the idea of talking about a people as an entity in its own right, separate from the person who ruled it, the God-given ruler, the king, the emperor, whoever, was unthinkable, or it was thinkable maybe only to a very small elite minority. But this idea that the people might be capable of taking decisions for themselves, and even deciding to some extent how they might be ruled, this was an extraordinary challenge to an old order that had prevailed for centuries. This was going on in Mozart's time. And I think it's fascinating that the two operas of his in which you particularly find this kind of democratization of the texture going on in the ensemble so that all the characters are reacting to each other rather than one holding the sway in an aria all the time are the operas Figaro and Don Giovanni, which are particularly strong in messages about challenging the old aristocratic order. They have very subversive messages. If you think about it, in both those operas, the aristocrats come out very badly. And it's the servants, often, who turn out to be the wryly ironic commentators and to have lives of their own in a way which some people found extraordinarily challenging in Mozart's time. I think it's fascinating, this crossover in style between that kind of writing in the operas and in the quartets. Mozart is moving, you might say, generally to a more democratic way of thinking. There's something else, actually, interesting that happens later in this movement, and it struck me as I was flicking through a few other people's uh, learned and worthy commentaries on this quartet in preparation, just to make sure I wasn't talking absolute rubbish. One thing that all the commentators said was that having got through that somber adagio at the beginning, the slow introduction to this movement, Mozart never refers to it again. We changed to the Allegro and we're in a new world, and that's that. I remember thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this. Actually, remember, let's hear the beginning of the opening of the quartet again. Now, this time, what I'd like you to do is concentrate on what the cello is doing. You notice that he's playing repeated notes. And these repeated notes are steadily falling, step by step, semitone by semitone, so that gradually over this passage, the cello falls, I think, from a C down to an E flat. It's a steady drop in repeated notes, like this. Here it's happening there, dum 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 dum, all the time falling in those 
repeated notes. Now, at the beginning of the central section of the first movement, what's normally called the development section in the sonata movement, where everything starts to get more dramatic and fluid and fragmented, you'll notice that the first violin and the viola are imitating, following each other, closely shadowing each other on the allegro theme, while underneath the cello is doing exactly what he was doing in the slow introduction, but in a much faster tempo, again falling steadily, chromatically, in repeated notes. I'm sure that connection is deliberate, but it's very subtle, isn't it? Because your ear is being caught by what the first violin and the viola are doing. They obviously have the tune, they have the themes. The cello's just playing repeated notes. It sounds like a simple accompaniment, but it's an accompaniment that ties that music in directly to the music at the very beginning of the quartet. That's a kind of subtle cross-reference that's very typical of Mozart. And the more you get to know these quartets, I assure you, the more of these kind of fascinating cross-references you'll find. It's one of the joys of this music, that the more you discover, the more you hear it, the more you get to know it, the more it reveals, and the more you understand just how clever Mozart was when it came to this kind of almost subliminal connection that's going on in music. But anyway, we'd better move on a bit. It's time we had a look at the second movement. After all, there are four movements of this quartet. Uh, the second movement is another fine singing slow movement. It's marked Andante Cantabile, walking pace singing. And again, the leader dominates, but you'll notice there's a kind of dialogue takes place between the first violin and the cello, and then gradually the entire ensemble are drawn in before the leader wraps it all up at the end of the first section. <laughs> Mozart leaves us hanging in the air like that for almost a whole bar. Lovely moment of what next. But what happens after that is a little bit of a surprise. Too much of a surprise, interestingly enough, for some editors of musical scores. Because the first bar that follows that, um, the cello plays on its own with what sounds like an accompanying figure. It sounds like this. Sounds fine to me, but would you believe that really seems to have caused some puzzled head-scratching amongst some critics and commentators, because there's that imitative texture on that figure, dum 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 ta da going on, but it seems as though the violins is missing at the beginning. And even these relatively modern parts uh, that the players have here, the editor has taken upon it himself to correct Mozart um, and uh, suggest what he should have done. And this is his suggestion. As you'll hear, it does make a kind of sense. 
So did Mozart make a mistake? Did he forget to put in the tom, 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 tom at the beginning? That does clearly make a great deal of sense when you put it back like that. Well, I don't think he did. I don't think that's possible because there's a recapitulation in this movement where the same passage comes back and once again, the violin stave is absolutely bare. So it clearly does look as though he meant that to come as a bit of a surprise. And I think that there's a reason for that, because Mozart, like Haydn, likes playing with our expectations, leading us to expect one thing and then doing something quite different. Because when we come to the recapitulation where this music is played again, Mozart repeats that passage, and this time with the violin's missing bar inserted. Only this time, again, it doesn't quite do what we expect. That's genius. First of all, we get the imitative text of it with a key element missing. We get that twice. Then we get this, and at least you think, aha, at last, the missing part is restored. But then the harmony turns into the minor and almost immediately begins a kind of dark, chromatic exploration, exactly like in the slow introduction to the beginning of the quartet. It's another kind of clever flashback. In other words, Mozart is making us think again back to the beginning of the quartet and those dissonant harmonies that gave the quartet its nickname. But he does it by leading us to expect one thing, or maybe preparing us to think that one thing is coming, finally giving it, and then making it do what we don't expect it to do. It's another wonderful example of this kind of dark-liked contrast that makes Mozart so extraordinarily interesting as a composer and unites, if you might say, the emotional and the symbolic world of these two first movements of the quartet. What about the minuet, the third movement? Again, at first, this minuet seems very happy to shrug off the kind of inward, serious tendencies of the andante. No more introspection now. And again, there's a kind of lively, convivial interaction between the voices. Sounds like you know, a really good-natured dinner party where people are kind of happily disagreeing about something, but in a very convivial and mutually respectful kind of way. Then comes the central trio section, and again, as in the D minor quartet, complete contrast, only this time it's the other way round. Where the trio was bright in the D minor quartet and the minuet was dark, this time we have a bright minuet and then a much darker trio, which seems almost like an aria from one of the more tragic operas. There's certainly a full, sort of really theatrical, operatic anguish about this, and the key is now definitely the minor key, C minor.
complete change of mood there, and again, change of texture, mostly a kind of aria for the first violin, until the cello kind of interrupts towards the end there and reminds us that this is, after all, a democratic string quartet. But it's typical of a classical minuet and trio. You hear the minuet, then that trio, then the minuet again, this time without the repeats. It's fascinating how different the minuet sounds coming after that darker middle movement. This extreme contrast changes the nature of what you hear. There's never such a thing as simple repetition in Mozart. He's extraordinarily clever about this. The way that you hear music again, the context in which you hear it again, means that its meaning in some way was always subtly changed, and that's very much the case with the minuet from the Dissonance Quartet. There's one more movement, the finale, which, again, as typically in classical quartets, seems to be lighter and less complicated, at least on the surface at the beginning. And again, the leader seems to be dominating at the first, but there are subtle reactions going on underneath. But then comes more extreme contrast. The harmonies darken, the whole texture dislocates. Listen, there are huge leaps on the first violin part, which is something very typical of Mozart when he's writing emotionally extreme music. He likes to make these enormous leaps in the middle of the melody, which if they're combined with the kind of shifting uncertain harmonies underneath, really give an impression that this music isn't as carefree as we thought it was at first. <laughs> So we have that relatively simple tune plus accompaniment at the beginning, although always with the inner elements threatening to get above themselves, and this sort of sense of something subversive going on underneath the surface. It's the same sort of message as we've encountered in the earlier movements. When the development section, the central section of this finale begins, it's in the minor key, it's darker, and the texture seems a lot less solid, more unstable, as though again the lower voices are doing much more to call this old order of the quartet into question, which is further emphasised by the very volatile changes in dynamics, quiet one moment, loud the next. the silence and then the texture really starts to break up you can maybe sense the leader's anxiety that she's not holding it all together anymore and the other elements in the quartet are becoming unruly underneath <laughs> So a real massive concerted effort is needed by all four players at the end there to pull the texture back together again. And they do so, only now we're in the key of B major, which is very remote from C indeed. So something like unity has been achieved, but there's the need to get back to the home key for complete stability's sake. And this volatility in the finale continues right through to the very end. And it's again that question mark that leaves you whether this style is typical of the Mozart of the comic operas or whether a, a serious point is being made, something subversive is going on underneath the surface. This is the very end of the quartet, the coda. And again, you'll notice how fluid the ensemble is, how much it keeps changing in texture. And listen up for the very last chord, because there is a big last chord, but you'll notice that the two middle voices, the second violin and the viola, go on playing for just one quaver more than the violin and the cello. And it leaves you with a little question mark again is how much is the leader of this quartet in charge? And how much have these subversive elements, the lower orders in society, got out of hand and asserted themselves?
Just a tiny hint of a question mark there. The last two notes you hear are from those two middle voices, supposedly the least important voices in the old harmonic texture, and yet they have the final say, just. Well, that's plenty to think about now as we come to, in a moment or two, our complete performance of Mozart's Dissonance Quartet, K465s in C major. But first of all, before then, has anybody anything they'd like to say? Or has anybody on any question they'd like to ask either me or one of the members of the quartet? If so, could you put up your hand and, ha, I see a microphone here. Right, lady over here, yes. Uh, good afternoon. In view of your fascinating interpretation, I would dearly love to know what the perceptions were in the audience of Mozart's time of pieces like this. Well, that's a very interesting question because the audience for pieces like this really was very much a connoisseur audience. Um, there's a very interesting Mo letter by Mozart, well, most of Mozart's letters are interesting, they're extraordinary, but uh, where he talks about writing piano concertos, which are public works, works for the widest public possible. He says that, you know, I'm, I've written these in such a way that there'll be something for people who know nothing about music can just enjoy on a very simple level. At the same time, the connoisseurs will hear things that'll please them as well. Now, writing quartets was really for a connoisseur audience. Very often, the audience would have been far smaller than the room in this in which we are seated today. There would maybe be no more than four or five people there. In fact, at the first performances of these quartets, there was an astonishing lineup of celebrities playing the quartet. There was Mozart's father, there was Haydn, and maybe one or two other people. And this is the kind of way in which this music was disseminated. Gradually, as amateur performance became more and more popular in Vienna, more and more people would play this music in their homes, but it was chamber music in the sense that it was written to be performed in very small rooms and by quite a select group. But the reception of these works in terms of the influence on the cognoscenti was huge because they clearly had an enormous influence on composers like Beethoven and Schubert. So these, these had a huge impact um, immediately on a very small number of people, but through them actually out to more and more people today. But it's a fascinating thought to think that far more people probably listen to chamber music today than ever did in Mozart or Haydn's lifetime. In those days, it was a very small and very select audience indeed.